The following presentation is from the 41st Annual Addiction Treatment Leadership Conference, presented by the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, held in Washington, D.C., May 5th through the 7th, 2019. Executive Director Marvin Ventrell speaks on the state of our association, implementing the core competencies of service, the NAATP Addiction Treatment Provider Guidebook, followed by General Session 1, Enhancing Quality, Accountability, and Effectiveness in Addiction Care, the Measurement-Based Practice Model. The speaker, John F. Kelly, Ph.D., he is the Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Addiction Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Here is NAATP Executive Director Marvin Ventrell. Relate very much to what began, not just with the 1976 group, but with the 1939 group. Um, perhaps you've heard of them. They wrote a book. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, what, what we know about 12-step facilitation uh, is that there, it, it is an evidence-based practice. And it's a measurable outcomes practice as well. So Dr. Kelly's uh, going to talk about some of those things. Let me tell you a little bit more about the National Association. How many folks are here for their first NAATP conference? Quite a few. Welcome. Um, I'm glad you're here. We're 41 years old. We arrived as a professional society when no such thing existed. And professional societies matter. Doctors, lawyers uh, have professional societies for a reason. The reason is it, that it is essential to come together, establish shared practices, and establish shared values, and move a profession together, together. That's why we exist. I hope that many of you who are new, or even if you have, have been here before but don't know about our services, will attend the 5 p.m. new member uh, benefits session this evening um, to learn about why it matters to be an NAATP member. And there are a lot of value-added pieces that Nikki Soda, our membership development director, and, and Becky Flood, our membership chair, uh, will tell you about. But I'm going to tell you that it's bigger than that. It's really about being part of the solution. It's about being one of the 50 that moved the profession forward when a profession didn't really exist. That's really what a professional society does. It holds us together, it provides values, it provides guidance, and it's especially necessary at a time of crisis or a, crime, or a time of serious transition, which is what we face today. The NAATP is comprised of two types of members. Provider members and supporter members. Our core are our provider members. Right? Um, provider members provide direct addiction treatment service. We have defined what qualifies an, as an NAATP member in greater degree recently because of some of the things that have happened out there. A provider member must be licensed to provide addiction treatment for all services that they provide in all locations at which they provide it. They must also indicate that uh, in their marketing materials and online so that the consumer knows what they're getting. They also have to be accredited. 
Beginning in January of 2019, NAATP initiated a requirement that all addiction treatment providers who are health care providers step forth, do the work to become accredited, again, so that the public has indicia of quality. I'll show you what that map looks like in just a minute. All NAATP members, including supporter members, supporter members are those who join the association and provide support in some way, shape, or form for the work that we do. And we need them, and we honor them as well. The ethics code, I talked a little bit about it last night, is central to the work that we do. I wish it didn't need to be central to the work that we do, but it is. We have defined in great detail, uh, and through the labor of a lot of amazing people, now in Ethics Code 2.5, that which is not allowed in our work. As a result of what has occurred, we've had to say to the public, to payers, to politicians, and to the press, this is a place where you can rely on the provider. If you come to NAATP, uh, you have indicia of quality. Uh, one of the things that we say, and that you are all bound by, is Ethics Code uh, 2.5. You not only agree to be bound by Ethics Code 2.5, you agree to be removed if there's a violation. Not really typical of professional membership societies, but necessary uh, at this time. And I thank you for all for, for supporting that uh, effort and for agreeing to those things. It's interesting to take a look at accreditation. Most of us are, by far, are accredited. If you look at the orange side of the chart, you will see those are NAATP members who are accredited by CARF. If you look at the other side of the chart, the purple side, uh, you will see that those are members who are accredited by the Joint Commission. We honor the Joint Commission. We, we honor CARF. There's a little slice of the pie in there that is actually joint, that is actually dual accredited by both CARF and the Joint Commission. In order to continue as a member of NAATP, you must be accredited by either CARF, the Joint Commission, or an other authorized, recognized by NAATP accrediting body. There are a few. Only a handful are not accredited, the little blue slice. We don't want to lose you, but we have to say to the public, we have to say to the payers that there is indicia of quality, and one of those indicia is accreditation. So a handful of our members, well, 41 uh, uh, locations, actually, are not accredited, and we're working with them to uh, get that accomplished. If you're beginning, those of you who do this, who know surveys, or our surveys, know this takes some time. And so we're giving those, but we want, we want, to, we want to keep the association uh, valid, but we also want to grow the association. We would like the tent to be as large as possible. Um, and so we're giving those members two years, 24 months, to complete their accreditation process. And uh, they are responding. And so uh, we're grateful for that. When you think about membership in the National Association, you think about that which you give and that which you get. One of the things that you get is recognition. You can be found by payers, providers, the press, and the public at NAATP. And you can be found in a directory that is not a marketing directory. You can be found in a directory that is not a directory designed to bring traffic to your own center. It's called the Addiction Industry Directory. It is the most complete 
transparent listing of treatment providers you will find. We do not suggest to any member who comes to the, any member of the public who comes to the addiction uh, industry directory that we uh, promote one member over the other. We simply provide all of the detail that is possible. Uh, one of the things that I think that, that's fascinating and shows real dedication among our members is we list the CEO's name and phone number. Right? <laughs> that's typically not, not what, what's done. We want the public to be able to call the boss. So this is an attempt to um, give you what you need in, a, in, a, in an ethical way that allows the public to find you. If you are a member of the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, you can log on to our website and use all of our resources. Nikki will go through that a bit more, but I want to show you this graphic. You will see that there is an orange line. That's the public line. When you log in as a member, you get a new bar. The, the, the brown or, or, or gray one, and it allows you to access all of our information, not just you, everybody in your center. Members of the end of NAATP are the entity, not the individual, and so when the entity joins, all of the staff, um, even if there are hundreds, um, uh, may create their own direct login and use all of our resources, and that's what that looks like. This is what we look like as a society. I showed this last night, and, and I'll show it one more time. That's a graphic of our membership, which has risen to an all-time high of over 900 facilities, largely as a result of the ethical stance that we took. Right? Um, when the congressional hearing happened last year, last night I said it was in October. I was there. You'd think I'd remember when it was. It was July. Um, in any event, uh, uh, membership rose significantly. We we uh, graph and chart our revenue, uh, our dues revenue, just like any business does, does its work. And the spike that happened as a result of saying, we're going to do this right, we're going to call out the bad guys, and we're going to be the good guys, uh, caused the phone to start ringing. It's just very rewarding to think that that's how that works. So what you're seeing here with this chart is a representation of all of our members. Um, each dot is a member. Each dot is an entity. Twenty years ago, you'd be looking at a whole bunch of little black dots. The business has changed. You're looking at a lot, you're looking at still a lot of little black dots, but we have a mergers and acquisitions and consolidation process that is occurring. Um, our membership probably reflects much of the membership of treatment across the country. The larger the dot, the the more locations the provider has. And so what we've seen in recent years is that the, uh, the little black dots have moved uh, toward the perimeter and larger centers are, are coming in. Interestingly, the way it looked in the transition process was a lot of little black dots and just a couple of really big centers. That's morphing into modest-sized centers, which, is re which are represented by the smaller dots. And I think that's where we're going to be for a while. Um, and so that's who we are and that's what we look like. We're here, as I said, for a historic purpose, and that is to implement something that we call the core competencies of addiction treatment business operation. As John Driscoll mentioned, we've worked very hard on this. We've released it as a beta version. We're going to teach on it this, uh, this week, and we're going to ask you for your feedback. This is for members, right? 
we want our members' feedback. There's a very specific portal that you go to to provide your feedback. We want to get this right, and we want to do it in a way that is fully implementable and practical on the ground. Um, and so you will go to that portal. You'll have to log in with your membership in order to provide those comments. But that's what we're off and running with now is what amounts to essentially a curriculum for training uh, competent operation of a treatment program. The guidebook is really the foundation of our broader initiative to create quality assurance, and it contains nine areas of core competency. We identified nine areas of core competency. By the way, if you haven't seen the guidebook, it's about 50 pages long and it's in your app. Um, and so is the outcome study, which we will talk about in significant detail as well. The guidebook is comprised of nine core competencies with 32 guidelines each followed by a descriptive commentary and then followed by a resource for implementation. Um, one of the simplest illustrations of that is outcomes. We want all of our centers uh, under the guideline to engage in an outcomes practice. The commentary explains that and the resource is the new NAATP outcomes toolkit. So it all comes together. Um, and we look forward to presenting this to you this week. Uh, and in particular getting your feedback before the end of May. Let's switch out and get Dr. Kelly up here, please. Um, Professor Kelly is the Elizabeth R. Spalin Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Addiction Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's the founder and director of the Recovery Research Institute at Massachusetts General, program director of the Addiction Recovery Management Service, and associate director of the Center for Addiction Medicine at Massachusetts General. Dr. Kelly is a former president of the American Psychological Association, uh, Society of Addiction Psychology, a distinguished fellow of the APA, and a diplomate of the American Board of Professional Psychology. He has served as a consultant to the U.S. federal agencies and non-federal institutions and foreign governments as well. His clinical research and work has focused on enhancing the effectiveness of addiction treatment and recovery support services, stigma reduction, and addiction and criminal justice. His session today focuses on the key components of the NAATP, one of the key components of the NAATP Quality Assurance Initiative, Addiction Treatment Outcomes Research and Analysis. This is special, everybody. Please welcome Dr. John Kelly. Hi, good morning, everybody. Can you hear me okay? I'm delighted to be here. I'm really honored to be here, and I've spoken here before at NATEP a few years back, so it's delighted to be, um, I'm delighted to be welcomed back. Thank you for having me back. Um, I, uh, and I'm also sitting there inspired by the progress uh, that you all have made and are making, uh, historical progress, and I like that historical context. I, I really do. Uh, I like that myself, and we're coming up for 50 years um, since the declaration of the war on drugs uh, back in 1970. So it's also a, a time, I think, to reflect on where we've come from in the last 50 years um, in terms of the birth of um, the National Institutes of Health, NIDA, NIAAA, SAMHSA, et cetera. And a lot of good has come from that. 
And um, I, um, <laughs> I feel compelled to, to tell you this story because I uh, almost didn't make it here last night. I, um, I got in, there was a big long line at the airport for a cab. And um, so I, got, I, I was waiting for a cab. It was like a mile-long line. And uh, anyway, so I got into a, got, finally got into a cab, and I, I, was, I was very happy. And, um, and the cab driver was ecstatic. I don't know what was wrong with him, but he was just a very lively cab driver. And, um, and he was very, ch very chatty. And um, so we're going along, and we're coming up to the, uh, I see about two miles away from the, um, from the hotel. And uh, I can see a traffic light up ahead, and it, and it goes from green to red. So instead of slowing down, he floors it, goes straight through the red light, right? So I'm thinking, okay, well, is this going through the red light? Um, anyway, so next light, same thing happens. Goes from green to red, about 100 yards to go. He floors it, goes straight through the red light, right? So this time I say, I said to him, I said, what are you doing? I said, you realize you've just gone through two red lights? So he turns, he turns around to me while driving. He turns around and says, no, he says, you don't understand. He says, my brother's been a cab driver in this town for 20 years. He never stops at red lights, never has, never will. Don't worry about it. <laughs> right? So, so I'm looking at my Google Maps uh, thinking, how, how far is it to the hotel? And uh, luckily, it was like a half a mile. So anyway, there's one more traffic light down the street. And... Um, so it's red, but it goes green. So I think, oh, thank God, you know. Um, but strangely enough, he comes up to the green light, slams on his brakes, and stops at the green light, right? So I said, excuse me. I said, you know, why are you stopping at the green light? And he says, oh, no. He says, you've got to be careful. He says, my brother could be coming in the other direction. That's smart. That's clever thinking. Now, that is not a true story, but it is based on a true story. <laughs> but um, I thought it was kind of a nice segue into, uh, into what I'm going to talk about today. It's a bit, of a, dry, uh, a bit of a dry topic. I had a patient sent to me the other day. He said, uh, he said, I was such a dry drunk. He said, I was actually a fire hazard. Uh, hopefully, it's not, going to be, you know, it's not going to be that dry, but um, it, it's kind of... Um, uh, it is a bit of a dry topic, and um, I'm not really one for dry topics myself. Um, but um, this one is, is one that uh, I, I hope I'll bring it to life for you. I hope that I'll make it interesting, uh, informative, and um, uh, probably hopefully highlight the, the, the significance of it. Um, um, but the, the idea of being based on a true story. Um, you know, when we, when we think about accountability and credibility, um, we want to, number one, be informed ourselves about how well our programs are performing and then able to communicate that effectively uh, to the public, as was already uh, described uh, by Marv. Um, and so it's the, it's the kind of the idea of really the truth or the trueness of, uh, of what we do, how we can get at that. Uh, how we can apprise ourselves uh, of that um, and also communicate that convincingly to those who uh, uh, need to know. Um, so I don't have any uh, disclosures. Um, I do want to let you know uh, we have this Recovery Research Institute, recoveryanswers.org. We have a free 
monthly bulletin uh, you can sign up for. I get a lot of good feedback from this uh, monthly bulletin which summarizes and synthesizes and contextualizes the latest research on addiction treatment and recovery uh, in a kind of a consumable format. So um, please sign up, get yourself the free bulletin. I think uh, what we find, the feedback we get is that a lot of, a lot of uh, clinicians in particular, program administrators, really like it. Um, so uh, thank you for um, signing up. Um, Lord Kelvin said this, if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. He was a Glaswegian, um, invented the Kelvin scale. Um, you might know zero degrees Kelvin is minus 273 degrees Celsius. Um, I remember that every day. Um, there's a reason why he thought of that. In Glas if you've ever been to Glasgow, you know it can get very chilly there. Um, so, um, but... Um, this notion of, of measurement, I, I think, is a, a very important one. And if you're not measuring something, how do you know um, uh, where it's at and what you can do about it? So I'm going to talk about measurement-based practice, this idea of measurement-based practice. I'll start with a little bit about the rationale, why I think it's important. Uh, what are outcomes? When we think about outcomes, what are they and how and when do we measure them? Uh, what are some of the advantages and empirical examples of measurement-based practice? I'll talk about that, and I'll give you some detailed one, one that I've developed uh, myself called the Measurement Assisted Practice System, uh, which is not out yet, but uh, it will be freely available when it is. So this idea of measurement and measurement-based practice um, is, is linked to this idea of value-based care. Um, it rewards quality, of course, rather than quantity. Um, better health care at lower costs through this idea of evidence-based medicine or evidence-based practice or treatment. And it's a critical aspect of, of, of this idea is, uh, is measurement. We all know in this room just how, how stigmatized substance use disorder is. In studies done not just in the U.S. but around the world, uh, we know that of all um, socially discredited um, conditions that people can suffer from and have, substance use disorder tends to be at the very top. Um, and they've done studies internationally to prove that. Um, also in terms of our, um, our, our care delivery, um, I often uh, uh, talk about, you know, if you, if you want to see how stigmatized SUD is, uh, just walk over to your local addiction clinic and compare the quality of the facilities there compared to your local cancer or diabetes clinic. And just notice the difference in the quality of the physical environment. That's reflective um, of a, a pervasive uh, stigma around uh, behavioral health, mental health, and particularly a substance use disorder. And there are many reasons for that I won't talk about today, but uh, it's something that uh, I've been trying to address that I know we all are trying to address to re reduce stigma and discrimination uh, for people suffering from these conditions. So how do we ensure and demonstrate that our treatment system um, and services have value and are of high quality, um, are effective and accountable? And this idea of quality, effectiveness and accountability can be all be captured with this notion of measurement-based uh, practice. Now, we've all heard of um, this buzzword, evidence-based practice, right? Um, and um, we're all kind of uh, accustomed to hearing it, talking about it, uh, 
trying to prove it. Um, and uh, some of the um, challenges uh, with this system I've outlined here. Uh, it's definitely a, a, a good idea, right? You think, well, of course, you know, beta base, we base our treatments on evidence. Well, um, well, there are diff different kinds of evidence, of course. Um, and the idea, of course, with evidence-based practice is that you go over here and you do your randomized controlled trials and you find out the results of those. And if you find a benefit um, of a particular treatment over another treatment, then you say, well, this one, this one works better or this one works, and you try and adopt that practice or that thing because you assume that if you do, um, you're gonna, patients are going to be better off. Uh, so that's the assumption. How true is it? Um, well, first of all, let me say that one of the problems we have with uh, so-called evidence-based practice models um, is the long delay between accumulating the evidence in a rigorous fashion. Um, if I was to write a grant, I'm an NIH-funded researcher. I get uh, nearly all my funding from NIH, uh, and that is a long process. Now, if I think of a clinical question that I want answered today, maybe, you know, do young men with opioid use disorder do as well uh, in my program? Uh, if not, um, can I implement some kind of recovery coaching or contingency management uh, to see if they do better? And I want to do a randomized controlled trial to see if I can prove that or find that out. So I get my paper and pencil out and I start sketching out some specific aims. And then I look for the next deadline for the NIH deadlines coming up in, in June or October. And I submit my application. I wait four months for it to be reviewed. I get a score if I'm lucky, um, playing revise, resubmit. You wait, you wait another six months to resubmit it. Then they review it again. Then you wait for the score again to come back. If you're lucky, you get funded two years later. That's the start of the study two years later. Then you do wait five years to get the results because it's hard to, to recruit clinical patients into your trial. So you try and recruit them. Those of you who've done this, you know how hard it is um, to get people into studies and then follow them over time because you're doing a longitudinal study. You want to test the effectiveness, the relative effectiveness of an intervention. So where are we talking, seven years now? Then you start to publish the results, right? Then you're crunching the data and you're publishing the results. How long does that take? Maybe another year or two. Then how long does it take for it to actually get out into the world so people actually start to find uh, your research findings, okay? That's about 10 years, okay? Remember, this question I just asked today. Now, 10 years later, you've got an answer. By then, the field, it may be irrelevant, right? Um, anyway, this is one of the problems that we have um, in this gap, this, this kind of the gap between um, kind of rigorous efficacy trials and then implementing those uh, results in, uh, in the real world settings. Um, generalizability and applicability of research findings conducted under excellent or ideal or rigorous condi conditions. How applicable are those findings when they have lots of uh, exclusion criteria uh, in those rigorously conducted trials uh, to the patients that I treat in my program? Will they really relate? Did you have um, significant proportions of the kinds of patients that I see in my clinic? So this issue of case mix, um, how applicable are these findings in, in, in the programs that, and the patients that we treat? And another very important finding is that, or, or, or challenge with evidence-based practice, is that when you find these average effects, which are usually small, uh, in these randomized controlled trials, they don't 
typically uh, examine moderators. They don't specify moderators. What, am, what do I mean by a moderator? A moderator is a variable which affects the magnitude of the effect. So, for example, does, my, does this particular treatment work better for men or women or people with psychiatric severity, high psychiatric severity, or those who have a comorbid uh, opioid use disorder or alcohol use disorder in addition to their cocaine use disorder? So these kinds of questions are called, called moderator questions. Very difficult to study because you have to amplify the sample size to detect these significant interactions. At most, in most clinical studies that you will read, they'll only include one moderator, so one interaction. When the question might be more like, I wonder if young women with opioid use disorder do as well as, uh, as the rest of the patients in my program. So immediately you've got a question, a, a very a reasonable clinical question that you can't answer no normally with clinical trials because you've included two variables now. Now you've got age and gender. Okay, which typically are not done and you have to amplify the sample size. So this creates a problem with uh, understanding the effectiveness of um, the, uh, the, tr the type of treatment that you're trying to implement based on average effects. Um, the other thing is ensuring um, that uh, even if an evidence-based practice is actually uh, implemented, it's done with sufficient adherence and competence uh, and fidelity uh, to the way it's delivered. And this is particularly true with psychosocial treatments um, for substance use disorder. So the idea that uh, if you ask clinicians in, in studies that have been done, uh, uh, what kinds of programs, what kinds of uh, treatments do you implement, they'll check the box and say, yep, we CBT, we do that, we talk about triggers, uh, yeah, motivation, we talk about motivation, we do a motivational interviewing, um, and so on. They'll go down the list and check all the boxes. Um, but in studies where they've actually looked at videotaped implementation in clinical trials, uh, they actually look at the uh, types of treatment that are being implemented. It doesn't resemble the evidence-based treatment protocol at all. So how do, you, how do you then account for this discrepancy between um, the actual evidence-based implementation and what people may report? Um, and so Marv was just talking about accreditation. I think that's very important, uh, again, for um, observed credibility, uh, Jayco, CARF, um, and others that can uh, up the ante in terms of allowing random audit. Um, of, of programs. I can tell you at Mass General Hospital we're JCO accredited um, and uh, everybody jumps when they hear the word JCO. Um, we do. We jump. We think, oh, JCO's coming. They're coming next week. Everybody's on red alert, um, right? Uh, <laughs> so everybody jumps into access to us panicking. Um, but, you know, it, it keeps everybody on a toe, even Mass General Hospital, which is reckoned to be one of the best hospitals in the whole world. So if Mass General Hospital has to, you know, uh, be monitored, um, uh, then surely uh, the rest of us should be. Um, and um, the cost and effort of dissemination, adoption, and implementation, um, here's an interesting, here's, here's, a, here's a real kicker actually, uh, is an interesting thing with the evidence-based practice paradigm is that even when, so you spend all this money developing this treatment, testing it out in rigorous randomized controlled trials and then, and then effectiveness trials, then you start to disseminate and it starts to be adopted in real-world clinical settings. Then you actually start to see, once you've trained all the staff in your evidence-based practice, you've got them up to adherence and competence in the, through videotape supervision over six months. Now they're delivering it exactly the way it was supposed to be delivered as it was tested in the randomized controlled trial. 
and then you look at the patient's outcomes relative to treatment as usual, and you find actually there's no difference. No difference between all that energy and effort. So that, what does that tell us? It tells us, wait a minute, okay, we're missing the boat here. We're missing the picture. I mean, tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars are spent in creating these uh, treatments, testing them, implementing them, disseminating them, getting people to, uh, clinicians to adopt them, um, only to find that the patient doesn't actually do any better. So, um, so why measurement-based practice? Um, one of them is the quality of care at the patient clinical level. Generally, there's a lack of patient awareness uh, of progress and in what ways they're progressing. If you think about, um, uh, you know, asking clinicians how their patients are doing. How's Jimmy doing? Oh, Jimmy's doing okay. How do you know? Oh, he's, you know, I think he's making progress. You know, he's coming to the sessions and I think he's, you know, I think he's doing okay. He seems to be um, telling me that, you know, he's changing his social network and, and uh, seems motivated. So you write a little progress note on that. Um, that's one type of one type of evidence, but um, a better type is usually actually using using some kind of psycho psychometrically validated tools, uh, and that's what I, that's what I'm going to really talk about uh, today. Now there are some examples in this in in other areas of healthcare, um, like diabetes and hypertension. So have you ever been to um, a, a medical visit where you don't have your blood pressure taken? If you, if you suffer from hypertension, they'll always take your blood pressure without fail. They won't do anything else until they've got your blood pressure reading, right? Why do they do that? Because everything that they do depends on that metric. They don't know what to do unless they have your blood pressure reading. So we call these vital signs. These in our field might be termed recovery vital signs or addiction vital signs or mental health vital signs. We haven't done a good job, other than just measuring abstinence, um, to look at these intermediate vital signs or recovery vital signs in our field. Uh, there's also a lack of not just the patient doesn't know how well they're doing, but the clinician doesn't know either um, or can't report that or articulate that very well. And there's poor program awareness and knowledge about uh, their own clinical effectiveness regarding the simple things like engagement, retention, dropout, six, quote unquote. Uh, success rate. Uh, there's also an inability systematically to identify which patient subgroups are failed, failing to respond to the standard of care. Now we know that not every patient responds in the same way. There are patient subgroups who are doing very well. Uh, some are doing very poorly. We kind of have a little bit of a hunch about who they are, but we can't kind of put a ring around them and identify them and then start to innovate and to be able to address them because what happens is there's typically a bunch of poorly um, functioning patients who don't respond well to the standard of care that pull down the average, the average effectiveness of what we do clinically. So to be able to identify that subgroup um, and be able to innovate and then measure the effectiveness of our innovation uh, is, um, is, can be very powerful instead of waiting 10 years for the results of a clinical trial to come along. Um, and this, that's the next point, limited basis for clinical innovation other than unsystematic hunches and limited ability to measure effectiveness of any innovation. And, and this is one of the other problems of, of the current system without measurement is that there's, e there's a kind of a, a passive resentment. Um, there's a passivity or perceived impotence uh, on behalf of clinicians 
um, even resentment that they're being told what to do. Right? I have to do this, and this now the same. We got to do now. We got to do this, uh, and many clinicians have bright ideas. They're innovators. They're testing things out. They're testing implicitly hypotheses out all the time in clinical care. But they have no way to actually formally test it out and measure the effectiveness. Get together with other team members and say, you know what? I've got an idea for this patient of young, young women with opioid use disorder don't tend to do well. Um, let's try and innovate and try and address their needs. Let's talk to some of these patients. Let's try and find out what we're missing here. Let's develop a program that we can supplement with what we're doing to try and address. And then we'll measure their outcomes and see if it's actually working. That takes three to six months, not three to six years. So here's an example in another field. This was done in cystic fibrosis. Um, and now cystic, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has detailed uh, data on all of their programs all around the country. And this wasn't because they were more enlightened. It was because there was a physician, this was back in the 1960s, uh, in Cleveland, who was claiming only a 2% mortality rate when the national rate was 20%. And most uh, people who had cystic fibrosis, kids at that age, were dead by age three. So the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation gave this guy, Warren Warwick, um, some money to go and evaluate all these centers and see if he was actually telling the truth. So they went and did a study. And they found, in fact, that the age of death for patients in this guy's center was 21. It was seven times what the national average was. And they asked him, so, well, what are you, what are you doing? And he said, well, I've got this other stuff that I've been doing to supplement what we've been doing here in the United States. They're getting this other stuff from uh, Europe and Eastern Europe, the thing, new, thing, new methods they've been trying, and I've been doing it here, and it's been working very effectively. By the 1970s, 95% of patients were living past their 18th birthday with cystic fibrosis, and his model became the national standard. So what's important about this is that through this process of monitoring and evaluation, you can identify not just underperforming programs, but overperforming programs. We can identify programs that are doing much, much better. Most programs don't know, have no idea that they may be outperforming the national average by one standard deviation, a large magnitude. But why? Because they don't measure anything, so they don't know. You may have actually hit upon a configuration of practice elements which are actually top-notch. They're actually doing, you're doing a fabulous job. But you just don't know it because nothing is being measured. So it's not just about um, identifying uh, elements or programs that are underperformed, but also being able to identify as a field uh, activities and programs and innovators out there who are out there now doing good work, um, who are actually probably outperforming the national average and doing a better job um, than all the research would suggest because they've hit on different configuration, different elements. So what are outcomes and how and when uh, do we measure them? So these kinds of programs, uh, these kinds of questions, uh, I'm sure, you, you know, we, we all hear about, we get asked, uh, uh, you know, what's the success rate of your program, whatever success rate means. Um, what is the outcome? We're interested when we hear that word outcome, and how and when should we measure uh, outcomes? Um, I, I kind of think about, uh, well, this is one depiction of how I might think about acute care treatment. Um, the idea is that we provide a, a, a very strong acute dose or booster of treatment that is supposed to send people into recovery orbit. 
that we, 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 you know, we bring them into treatment and then 28 days later, boom, um, they're in orbit and uh, they're just circling up there happily in remission. Um, but we, we know it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Um, I think if we really believed addiction was a chronic disease, I think we would really focus um, very intensively on linkages uh, within a recovery-oriented system of care. We're starting to go in that direction, um, thanks to you all, and we're gradually moving there. Um, but I think, you know, uh, part of it has been shooting ourselves in the foot um, in, uh, in the way that we evaluate our, our own addiction care. Uh, here's an example with another chronic illness. Um, uh, I got this idea from, I should credit Tom McClellan for pointing this out to us all. Um, but here is a comparison between hypertension and addiction. When you prove, when you want to prove a treatment for hypertension, which is a chronic illness, uh, works, this is what you've got to show the FDA, is that before, before you deliver the treatment, symptoms are high. Then you, uh, that's the, on the left-hand side. And as you, as you implement the treatment, people, the symptoms are suppressed. They go down. People achieve remission. And then when you take away the treatment on the right-hand side, the symptoms return. That's proof that the treatment works. Fair enough. Right? You give the treatment, symptoms go away. You take away the treatment, symptoms come back. That's, that's a, 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 a proving that uh, treatment for a chronic illness works. Um, so bingo, you get your FDA treatment approved. Um, now let's take addiction. Same thing, people come into treatment, symptoms are high, we give them treatment, symptoms go away, they get into remission, you take away the treatment and the symptoms return. That's proof that treatment failed. Right? That's proof that treatment doesn't work for addiction care. So Think about that. You know, are we talking about an acute illness or are we talking about a chronic illness? For a chronic illness model, then when you take away the treatment, then the symptoms are likely to return. Now, what we know about addiction is that it tends to have a chronic clinical course. Most people achieve remission, but it can take many years to get there. Even importantly, if you look on the right-hand side of this uh, timeline here, um, even when people, it takes about eight years in clinical samples, so these are more severe individuals uh, on the moderate to severe end of SUD uh, with low recovery capital, it takes about eight years to get one year of remission after their first treatment. About four to five treatment episodes on average in adults in severe clinical samples, kind of people that we see in specialty treatment. Um, about four to five, so about eight years to get one year of remission. Most of those days are abstinent days, but to get that one year of remission, that is to say 12 months without any symptoms, okay, um, of SUD, uh, other than craving, um, takes about eight years. Here's the other thing. It takes about four to five years after you've achieved remission before the risk of reinstatement drops below 15%. Why 15%? Because 15% is the annual rate in the general population of meeting criteria for a substance use disorder. So to be no more likely than anybody else in the general population of meeting criteria for SUD in the next year takes four to five years of continuous remission after you've achieved that first year of full sustained remission. So what does that suggest? People are at elevated risk relative to the general population for four to five years, even after they've achieved that first year of sustained remission. So this indicates a, a system of recovery management, recovery monitoring, that we can identify the kinds of symptoms and signs that may emerge uh, before full-blown um, reinstatement. 
Now, when we think about outcomes, I think a lot of us think about, you know, the cannon scenario. We, we, we kind of shoot someone out of the cannon, and then wherever they land, like a year from now, we'll measure their outcomes. Okay? Um, so here's the, here's the treatment over here, and then we're going to measure their, their outcomes over there. Okay, to try and, try and, and, and then, we, then we attribute it to the treatment over here. Treatment works if we shoot them out of the can and then they're still sober 12 months or two years later or whatever. Now, these are some of the challenges to, uh, to doing that. One is cost. Uh, there's three, what I call three Cs, cost, case mix, and credibility. So the cost factor is expensive. It's very expensive to do follow-up studies well. Um, one of the big challenges is getting people, we, we suffer from this in research studies where we have full-time staff, two or three full-time staff dedicated to nothing else than just following people over time, make sure they don't drop out of the study so we can actually get their assessment data uh, along the way, three, six, nine, twelve, eighteen months later. Um, so we're paying full-time staff just to do that, to keep people in the study, very hard to do. And uh, we try and keep follow-up rates above 70%. We have systematic uh, protocols to try and make sure that we keep the retention rate high. Why? Because if the retention rate drops down, then what can you say about the effectiveness of your study, right? Because you only have a limited number of people. Those people who pick up the phone and answer your survey tend to be the ones who are doing better. Uh, so it creates a biased sample. So one of the things is, is, is cost. Now, if you're a treatment program and you're trying to do this, that's very hard to do unless you allocate substantial resources to do it. Here's the other problem. Even if you do do it and you get 80 90% follow-up rate, of, and it's representative of everybody that you treat, uh, you may be treating people who have very high recovery capital. Right? How does that compare, or people with, without significant severe mental illness who, you know, who other programs have to deal with? So how, are you comparing apples to apples or apples to oranges? So this idea of case mix adjustment is very tricky also to, to figure out. Uh, the other thing is credibility. If you're doing your own one-year evaluation, will people believe you? Right? Will people believe what you're talking about? Will they say, well, this is an unbiased study? So there's this issue of credibility as well. And, you know, as uh, you know, Marv mentioned, you know, uh, kind of uh, reining in or, or, or creating ethical uh, standards in terms of not overselling uh, or over or whatever, um, you know, these, these uh, cure rates or access rates, even talk, talking about a cure. Uh, uh, we know that's something that we don't talk about, and, and uh, um, it's, it's just foreign to the way that we think about um, uh, substance use disorder. Here's this one on the left, you know, promising an 84.4% cure rate. That's pretty impressive. It's actually, it's actually 84.42 now. <laughs> it's gone up, um, I think, last year. But um, it's that precise. Um, but, but it's bullshit, right? I mean, it, it's kind of like, uh, and, it, and, it, and it's not only bullshit, but it's, it's, it's scary. Um, it's, it's also, it does a disservice um, uh, to, to, to people who, are, you know, who, who, who don't have a lot of money, who are trying to get care for their, for their loved one, their son or daughter, uh, with their life savings. Um, so um, so I think one of the solutions that we can, we can implement here in, in the space of addiction, like has been implemented, if you think about diabetes, think about hypertension, those examples I mentioned, is that the basis for care, the basis for driving care, is based on standardized psychometric uh, valid measures. 
uh, measured contemporaneously that drive uh, at the point of care that drive uh, uh, the, uh, the course of the clinical care. Um, and the idea is you capture these things during treatment because this is a chronic illness. You're monitoring people over time, particularly in that first five years. And again, this idea of recovery vital signs. Am I capturing these recovery vital signs um, that, uh, that can give me a clue, give the patient a clue, give my boss, the program director, a clue about how this program is doing? And these measures, importantly, need to have clinical utility. They need to be very brief, psychometrically validated, and important, have uh, utility, meaning to patients and providers and programs and payers. So here's some advantages and empirical exam examples of what can happen with, when, when you do this. Uh, so some of the advantage are, advantages are that it enhances patient awareness. So um, I just happen to be one of these people who've always measured my patients' outcomes. I've always used right from the get-go, beginning of my training. I don't know why I did that, but I just always felt like I needed to or wanted to do that. So I've always, you know, years ago I used to use Excel and, and, and Microsoft Word and make these patient feedback forms and all this. Um, but the idea is that when you can plot using psychometrically validated measures, give that to the patient and say, this is where you came in, this is where you are now, and these are psychometrically, these are meaningful metrics. Um, the, patient, the patient is actually, wow, this is really cool. I didn't see, I can see where, so you've got some grist for the mill. You've got some objective data that you can present and then use that to inform the patient to help them stay on track. There's enhanced clinician awareness. So the clinicians now know they have some data uh, to, on which to base their clinical decisions and also talk to loved ones about how the patient, their patient is doing in treatment, their loved one is doing in treatment, um, and, uh, and so on. And also to be able to aggregate and summarize and report to the head of the hospital or the program to say, this is our program, this is what we're doing, and we're doing well, or we're making improvements here, and this is, we're showing these improvements. So it's enhanced clinician uh, awareness. Um, one of the things I, I, I faced a challenge, I started the program in 2007 where I work uh, at MGH, and um, it was a program for young people, uh, part of which was this idea of measurement-based practice. So I wanted to make sure that right from the ground up that we captured uh, measures of how patients were doing for every point of care as every session. So there were brief psychometrically validated measures. Now initially, the uh, social workers who make up the majority of the program, very opposed. This is research. We don't do research. Why do we have to do this? Why do we have to collect these measures? This is not in our purview. We don't do this stuff. That's for the researchers to do. We do the clinical work, the real stuff. Um, so I said, no, well, let's try it out. Let's give it a try. Let, you know, let's, let's try it. One year later, if I was to say, okay, we're done with that. We're going to take away these measures now. They would have fought me to keep it. They fought me. They said, no, we want to keep these. Definitely want to keep these. Why? Because they could actually produce visible, objective, psychometrically validated recovery vital signs to the patients, to themselves, to the parents, to other people, to the hospital. We got funding um, just by virtue of having some simple data, uh, data points uh, using psychometrically validated. We got extra funding for the program, and that, and that's, that has continued. 
uh, and like I said, enhanced program awareness and enhanced ability to detect patient subgroups failing to respond. Here's one of the key things I think that we can do, that we can start to identify patient subgroups who are underperforming, if you will, or under-responding to uh, the normal uh, evidence base. Um, and here's the other thing I was alluding to earlier. Then if we can identify who these patient subgroups are, we can start to innovate and try something new that will address the needs of, those, of that particular type of patients. So we could get together with other clinical staff. We could find out. So let, well, I think we not, might need to bolster this area. We've talked to some of these patients. We need to bolster this area. Let's implement a clinical uh, uh, supplement to what we're doing here on, uh, with, this, with this, uh, this group of young women with, uh, with opioid use disorder. So we implement it. And you can test it out. So you can test it out. And you can see right there within three to six months with patients coming, is, are, are they starting to respond better on these metrics? And you can start to do that. Um, also, you can compare, so within a system, within a healthcare system, um, or a number of programs that you may have under your auspices, you can actually contrast and compare centers um, uh, and look to see which centers are over overperforming or which are underperforming. But understand why. Understand why, these, why, why, the, why the centers are over or underperforming. Particularly the ones I think of interest are, are the ones that are overperforming. Um, here's the other thing I think is very important from both a clinical practice standpoint and also a theoretical standpoint on which our programs are based and what we do. So um, understanding how our programs work and where there are weak links in the causal chain of what we do. So I'll, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, how we can do this using this measurement-based practice model. It is possible to evaluate treatment models like 12-step treatment or CBT by investigating the, the extent to which the presumed underlying mechanisms or proximal outcomes in a particular treatment model or theory are met and relate to long-term outcomes. By specifying and testing linkages in the treatment chain, one can find out where, if anywhere, the process breaks down and identify the specific type of failure involved. And this is a simple idea um, that was explicated back in the 1950s and 60s, looking at just healthcare evaluation. So, uh, you know, we're busy doing treatment. We don't often step back and say, well, well actually, what should happen um, if I'm running a residential program, what should happen to my patients from the day they walk in to the day they're discharged? What's changing? I can measure their vital signs, or the blood pressure's gone down, the vital signs are improving. What else? What else should change between intake and discharge? Or if I'm running an outpatient service, what should change between day one and day 50? or a day 100 in my program. What's changed? What have I given the patient that's different? Is it measurable? We know that treatment relates to remission. Definitely does. If people get treatment, there are much higher rates of remission over time. So breaking this down a little bit, um, think about uh, what should happen. Let's say you're running a 12-step treatment. You could, you could apply this to a medication treatment, to a CBT treatment, to a motivational treatment, whatever it is. Here's a 12-step example. So they come into treatment. I'm never going to meetings. No, I've been. I'm, I'm, I've tried AA meetings. It sucks. I'm, not gonna, I'm never going to go. Okay. So if you're a 12-step treatment program, what do you do? 
right? You want to try and increase their motivation to, and, and belief in the fact that, you know what, if you go, you're going to have a better outcome. Well, I'm going to try and convince you of that over the next four weeks. We're going to have people come in, we're going to take you to meetings, etc. So hopefully their belief, their positive expectancies about 12-step uh, uh, meetings and, and the need to go will uh, improve uh, over the course of, of treatment. If I'm a 12-step treatment program, if I was a CBT treatment program, it would be something else. I want to boost self-efficacy, coping skills. If it was motivation, I need to boost motivation. I can measure that from the time they came on to, to the time they're discharged. Um, and what, uh, what we can do is we can actually look in this causal chain of events uh, to look to see where there may be uh, shortfalls or breaks in the causal chain of analysis. So the example I gave you, so that idea of people coming into treatment, their belief in the need to attend AA, let's say, from a 12-step perspective is low. So we implement uh, the treatment and they're actually, their motivation to go, their uh, intention to go increases and we can measure that. There are psychometrically validated measures that we can actually look at that and measure that. And we think, bingo, um, uh, we've actually succeeded in improving from intake to discharge people's intention, their beliefs, their positive expectancies about 12-step. On the other hand, and we say well, that's an implementation success. On the other hand, if you measure that and you find that you, your patients or some of your patients are actually have no change, even if it goes in the opposite direction. What Sigmund would say, Suchman and Finney would say, is that that's an implementation failure. So you know something's gone wrong here, okay, because this very important proximal outcome in my 12-step treatment, that is to say a positive expectancy and intention to go, is not there, even though we've given them all this treatment. So what do we need to do? Maybe for everybody, or for at least for some of those patients, we need to tweak the treatment a little bit. Maybe we need to address it a little bit differently. Now I know that not everybody responds in the way I want, so I need to do, uh, I need to implement, intensify, or use a different approach. Now let's say that the um, uh, bingo, the, the patients do improve. Everybody improves in treatment in terms of their beliefs uh, and intentions and expectancies about 12-step. And we end treatment, and we've shown this increase, significant increase, and it's in the range that we want. But when when we look down the road and we find, well, they had the intention to go, they had these, we managed to get their positive expectancies, but they didn't actually go. That's called a program failure or a program success. Okay, this is according to to Finney and, and Sukman. So there, we need to, again, need to go back and find out in the linkage between this positive expectancies we've, we've induced through treatment and this proximal outcome of attendance, there's some disconnect there. Let's look at that, examine that disconnect, and then try and focus on that, how we can improve that linkage. Maybe we need to have a recovery coach or some kind of peer member uh, have a warm handoff to, to get them linked up to, to community-based 12-step. Uh, on the other hand, let's say this all worked out implementation success, you're boosting these people's expectancies, and they go after treatment. They're going gangbusters after treatment in the first 90 days after treatment. Just what you want. That would be considered a program success. But that increase in participation does not relate to remission status. That would be considered a theory failure. Because this very important, crucial theoretical proximal outcome of participation in AA and NA and 12 does not actually relate to better outcomes. That would be considered a theory failure. In other words, you have to go back to the drawing board and say, you know what, we thought this really was the way to go, but now you know, we have to figure it out. It doesn't seem to be panning out the way we thought. But the important thing here is that if you're measuring 
this along the way through your services or the services you provide, you can identify where in the causal chain. You're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You're not saying, well, this treatment doesn't work. You're saying, okay, let's look where exactly we need to bolster uh, our services and our implementation to make sure that we increase, bolster the linkage in these uh, different um, uh, uh, parts of the causal chain. So um, here's, some, here's some measurement, uh, coming back to some day-to-day uh, -day examples. Here's some measurement-based practice examples um, done by three pioneers in this area, Michael Lambert, Tom McClellan, Scott Miller. Um, this is the idea, again, these are not, um, to, other than Tom McClellan with his recovery, uh, concurrent recovery monitoring, not specific to addiction, they measure um, alcohol and drugs stuff as well as uh, mental health functioning. But Michael Lambert uh, has been a particular uh, pioneer. And um, there's a couple of uh, systematic reviews. He's just published one. He was commissioned by the American Psychological Association to do a review of this, uh, this idea. Um, what he found uh, in this prior review, I'll show you that review in a second, but what he found was, again, this is not doing anything other than measuring. Okay, you're not changing your practice. You're not doing anything different. All you're doing is you're measuring and then you're giving feedback about how well patients are doing uh, on these different psychometrically validated metrics. Double the effect size of treatment and increase the proportion of, of clients with reliable and clinically significant change. Cut the dropout rates in half. Reduce the risk of deterioration by one-third. Shorten the length of treatment by two-thirds and drive down the cost of care. Okay, this is not implementing a new practice. It's not coming up with a genius idea about some, you know, psychosexual conflict that you're going to resolve. Um, from their childhood, um, but rather purely measuring feeding back to patients and to clinicians on how well their patients are doing. This is a, the, the more recent version. This was a fancier, longer report um, in psychotherapy published uh, just a few months ago, uh, commissioned by the APA. Um, Two-thirds of the studies found that um, this uh, measurement-based practice, psychotherapy was superior to treatment as usual, differed by this, uh, even when offered by the same practitioners. So even when you control therapist effects constant, um, you see this uh, large magnitude effect. And these procedures help clinicians prevent treatment failure and enhance positive outcomes by becoming more responsive to the client's needs and difficulties. Again, you know, it's the measurement of hypertension. It's the blood pressure measurement which drives the care, right? Get the blood pressure... Let's get the psychometric, uh, the recovery vital signs, and do something about it. And there are several examples just doubling, doubling uh, engagement, doubling retention, purely by just feeding back to patients uh, how well they're doing. Uh, helping to uh, reduce um, um, psychiatric distress, alcohol, and drug use. This is a study where they just uh, gave uh, clinicians feedback about how their patients were doing. Um, if they were doing poorly, um, they gave them the feedback based on these simple psychometrics. And this is the magnitude of the difference, just in terms of reducing dropout uh, and improving clinical outcomes, just purely uh, by giving them um, uh, feedback. Tom McClellan has developed this recover uh, recovery tracker. I know some of you in the room have used this um, uh, uh, as a way to inform, again, inform clinical care using psychometrically validated measures. There are many different ones out there. I'll tell you about, uh, just to end with this one that uh, I've developed, um, again, based on these uh, simple principles, it's called the Measurement Assisted Practice System, or MAPS, uh, to enhance quality, effect, uh, accountability, and effectiveness, and empower uh, providers. 
And you can use this system uh, at, multiple, uh, at multiple levels. So here's just an example where you, if you have a number of different programs under your auspices within your treatment system, you can actually look, aggregate by program on these metrics. You can look at it by staff. Um, staff themselves can look at it by individual patients' progress over time, or look at all their patients over the last year, the last two years, the last five years, and understand how their patients are doing. How are they themselves may be doing relative to last year. Are they being more effective as a clinician themselves? Case mix adjusted. And these are some of the proximal and longer term outcomes that I think are important and that which we include in this uh, MAP system. But this is not rocket science. This is just things that we know from the literature have criterion validity. These are the factors which actually predict better outcomes. Okay, so you don't have to make it up. You don't have to, well, what, are we, what kind of measure are we going to make up? Oh, I know, I'm going to ask about this. No, you can actually just go into the literature and you can find these things which actually we know predict robustly uh, proximal outcomes. Three months from now, I know if somebody's abstinence self-efficacy is a 9 or a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10, just a simple single item absent which has been validated with clinical patients, they've got a, I've got a 70 to 100% chance they're going to be abstinent in the next three months just by virtue of that simple assessment. Um, you can look up recovery motivation, engagement, retention, pain, craving. These are all important metrics. Again, recovery vital signs. Um, these are all available, simple measures. I've tried to reduce them so that they're simple, easy to use, quick to administer at the point of care. And again, just looking at baseline um, and then doing, doing weekly follow-ups. Um, and... Um, Yeah, intake and so. So this is what it can look like on an iPad type device. So what we do is we give this to patients in a waiting room uh, when they're waiting for, in their, for their outpatient appointment. We set the, the admin person sets it up, just says click here, and then the patient can just go through while they're waiting. They go through, it takes them about five minutes to do the set of measures. We measure pain, craving, days of intoxication, longest period of abstinence, um, et cetera, IV drug use. They just hit submit. The data are, summar are scored, summarized, ag aggregated. They might be aggravated too, um, but the, the, the data are aggregated and summarized and graphically presented um, so that the patient sees them and the clinician can see them and talk about them with, the, with them in the, when they come into their office. But the, the point here is it's instant. It hits submit. It's instant through, through modern technology, through the computer process. It can instantly score, aggregate, summarize, contextualize, and present. Um, and um, I'll just give you a few examples of what this can look like. And there are many examples of this kind of uh, software now um, out there in terms of... Um, So these, these, these are some of the graphs, just single patients. You can look at aggregated patients over time, but you can quickly, uh, quickly see how patients are progressing. These are some of the questions that you can answer with a few clicks of a mouth. Wouldn't it be fantastic if you could say, you know, what's our dropout rate this year compared to last year? Click, click, and you can find that out. What's our engagement rate? How many patients actually in our program um, attend at least two sessions in the first month after they do an intake session. Has that improved? Are we improving in that from this year compared to last year? What's our trend been like over the last five years? What about um, 
in terms of abstinence or mental health symptoms, how are we doing there? How are men and women doing in our program? Are they doing equally as well? Or are women, is there a, full sh a shortfall for the, the, uh, uh, the effectiveness of what we do for women? And what can we do about that? Again, so it enables you to identify trends over time, look for ways that you can improve, and are you improving to be able to document that? Again, just with a few clicks of a mouse, of a mouse to understand how you're doing. Uh, are we reducing IV drug use? To what degree? To what, what degree are we actually improving in that compared to uh, this year, compared to last year, compared to the last five years? Uh, what about medication uh, compliance? Is it improving? Um, to what degree is our new program, this clinical in innovation that we implemented six months ago, to what degree is that with, with young mothers, to what degree is that actually having an effect in the way that we intended? So again, simple questions that we all want to answer, right? What we used to do is uh, we'd have to send a, a query to the healthcare records system. It would take months to get a clunky, horrible-looking report back from then, and it was full of holes, right? That's what we used to do. Um, but now, with modern technology, we can do more of this, uh, what I'm talking about. So here's the other thing, looking at moderators. So looking at higher, what we call higher-order interactions. So to be able to cross-categorize, I'm not interested in just men or women. I want to know about what about young women with opioid use disorder and high psychiatric severity. There's four variables. We never test four variables in clinical trial. But think about all the data that you're aggregating. You're aggregating hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of patients over time. You can start to look at, wait a minute, okay, yeah, let's look at this subgroup over here. These, these folks are doing very poorly in our program. Now we can start to identify. Now we can start to innovate. Now we can start to improve uh, for those patients. And you know what? Your overall average is going to go up. Your overall effectiveness average will go up because there are certain, these certain subgroups which are, are doing poorly. So just to finish up, there are many challenges in the implementation of evidence, so-called evidence-based practices. Ensuring adherence, competence, actual improvements in patient outcomes, even when those evidence-based, so-called evidence-based practices from the latest uh, clinical trials are implemented. And again, this is a big waste of money. We, we waste so much money in healthcare because we throw good money after bad, congratulating ourselves on implementing a best practice when the patient, the patient isn't actually any better off $100 million later. Why? Because we don't measure what really matters on the front line. We're not measuring the context, the things that really matter uh, when, we, when we move it into the real world. So moving from evidence-based practice to measurement-based practice can enlighten our patients, our staff, our programs, our payers as to the effectiveness of clinical efforts and lead to innovations, as I said, and testing of those innovations quickly without waiting for 10 years of, of clinical trials data to come back, only to find when we implement it, the patient isn't been any better off. Measurement-based uh, practice can lead to the identification of, importantly, overperforming programs, revealing novel combinations. Think of that cystic fibrosis uh, example. There are programs out there right now, you may be one of them, which is overperforming. You're doing far better job with your patients than what anybody knows about because you've hit upon a number of uh, factors which uh, uh, conspire to, to create that, but you don't know. So we can identify, start to identify these configurations and begin to make that a best practice. 
And also, I think importantly, we can start to improve our theories of how people get well. As I mentioned, through this causal chain analysis, in other words, understanding these implementation failures, the program failures, the theory failures, or implementation successes, theory successes, program successes, to be able to identify where in the causal chain of events we're starting to uh, fail or need uh, the things uh, that uh, stuff needs bolstering. So with that, I will leave you alone, and um, I'll leave you with uh, Lord Kelvin. If you can, you measure it, laddie. You can, you improve it. That's what you said. All right. Thank you. Have a great conference, and thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you.